everyone. It's great to be here. Uh, thanks to Holly for the warm introduction, to Rena, to the rest of the, the staff, Marcel, Diana, and uh, Eddie, everyone else. Uh, I'm really happy to be with you today to talk about uh, art as a process. I just came in from New York, um, and what I do in New York is I work as a professor teaching uh, economics of art. And when you teach economics of art, you end up in this funny space because economics as a discipline is really obsessed with efficiency. Um, so you end up in the land of Frederick Winslow Taylor studying factory workers to see how their movement could become more efficient. Um, there is something of an artistic analog to this in the time motion studies of Edward Muybridge to try to understand how our bodies move in space with economy. Um, but when you talk about the economics of art, you end up with something more like a radical, beautiful, willful inefficiency. This is a drawing made by Lenka Clayton, and she made this drawing on a typewriter. It's like, that drawing is made on a typewriter. You also end up with an artistic sensibility that's not based on efficiency or scarcity, but generativity, and what it is to operate um, not from efficiency and scarce resources, but from barter and abundant resources, as in the case of trade school, a barter economy school uh, started by artists in New York and then expanded all over the world. And this is really what I want to talk to you about today. This is my offering um, for all of us in this space, kind of taking a moment of pause from I'm sure extremely busy, amazing, uh, chief, awesome, officer, working lives. Uh, I want to talk about a definition of art that is much broader than a painting or a sculpture or innovation strategy. And what that is, is to say that if you're making a work of art in any field, you're not going from a known point A to a known point B, you're inventing point B. This uh, is interesting because we live in the point A world in which you have to take the risk of committing resources uh, to invent a point B world that may or may not succeed. Um, and so I want to talk about this in terms of what the great art projects are of our time. And the first one I wanted to talk about is blockchain. I think most people think that blockchain started in 2009 with the publication of the Satoshi Nakamoto Bitcoin white paper. Uh, and excuse me, there, I, I need to use a handheld mic so I feel like I'm going to bust into song or something. Um, we think that this started with, with the publication of the Bitcoin white paper. And I actually thought this until a couple of years ago. Um, I credit a colleague of mine at NYU, David Yermak, who is the chair of the finance department, with this observation. Uh, Yermak, in classic scholar mode, was preparing for class. He's taught one of the longest standing blockchain classes in any American university. Um, he, he was reading the paper, and Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin white paper has eight footnotes. Three of them are to the work of Haber and Sternetta. One of them has a third co-author, Bayer, as well. Um, and being a scholar, Yermak went and looked up the first paper, which is called How to Timestamp a Digital Document. When uh, Yermak looked at this, he noticed that the address on the paper was Morristown, New Jersey, which is where he also lives. So he took a flyer 
and emailed the two authors. And Sternetta wrote him back and suggested that they meet at the local Friendlies. I don't know how familiar Friendlies is globally, but it's, it's like a northeastern diner that's known for its ice cream, uh, mint chocolate chip in particular. So they met at the local Friendlies, and your Max like, this is where I take my children for milkshakes on their birthday. Stornetta calls this the blockchain friendlies because this is where he had the breakthrough idea that enabled that work. So you have to imagine, it's the late 1980s, and Stuart Haber, a cryptographer, and Scott Stornetta, a physicist, are working together at Bellcore in New Jersey. This is an offshoot of the legendary Bell Labs. It's the peak early adoption of home computing. 15% of American homes have a personal computer, and they ask themselves a question that's actually poetic and political, and that question is, digital files are so easy to copy, how will we know it was true about the past? And how will we know it was true about the past without having to trust a central administrator to hold the, hold the files? Turns out this is extremely, extremely hard to do. It's so hard to do that they got to the point of giving up, which for a cryptographer and a physicist is to formally disprove it. Um, and then one day, Stornetta was waiting with his family at Friendly's and he had this insight that if he could create many, many, many connected copies of a digital ledger, they could uh, be trusted without having to trust a central administrator. Haber and Sternetta presented this work in 1990. They published this in 1991. They worked, as I mentioned, for Belcor, so they didn't own the intellectual property. Their employer did. Um, but they negotiated to spin out a company called Surety, which started to timestamp records. You can imagine chemistry um, bench science notebooks with a stitched binding and numbered pages. They, they would put that record online electronically, and then they would publish a weekly hash summary of the function. They still publish this in the lost and found section of the New York Times, making it the oldest blockchain in the world. Um, I mentioned this as an art project because Haber and Sternetta, you know, not unlike someone like Vincent van Gogh, were ahead of their time. They did the foundational work that has enabled cryptocurrencies, tokenization, financialization, self-sovereign ID cards, many, many applications of blockchain technology. Um, and they did this as people in the world, um, not, not as technologists with a capital T. And, and I think this is partly um, in the context of inventing point B. This is partly a reminder of how much, when we think about innovation or creativity, we are actually surrounded by the after picture. We are rarely surrounded by the before picture or the process. Um, take, for example, Roger Bannister, May 6, 1954. Bannister is the first person in modern recorded sporting history to run a mile in under four minutes. You might think of the moment he broke the tape, or you might think of the moment he is celebrated uh, meeting Winston Churchill. Um, there's a video I highly recommend watching if you need a five-minute break in the next week of him running it. This video made me cry every time I watched it for about a year. Um, because this is a picture of what it is to go all in on something before you know it's possible or not. Um, 
It may seem like a foregone conclusion that he ran the first sub four minute mile because we live in that point B world in which that's possible, and in fact, in which someone bested his time 45 days later. But when he was doing this, he had no idea he could do it or if he would die trying. And this is what the frontier of possibility of creativity of inventing point B looks like. Um, so I want to offer a few tools and processes that you can use to engage in this in your life and your work. And these tools range from artistic mindsets to business economic structures. Um, the first is to ask lighthouse questions, just to fully own what is the question you actually care about. Not, a, not what is the question that's put in front of you that you can try to answer, but what is the question that matters whether you can answer it or not. You can think of Haber and Sternetta's question, how will we know it was true about the past? Set studio time. Um, so here, instead of thinking of creativity as this giant banner that all of your work has to fall under, think of creativity as an alternative asset allocation. Think of it as 10% of your investment portfolio as a worker or as a company that you can just devote to whatever is important. An area not for incremental change, but for potential transformational change. So when I say set studio time, think of an amount of time that you can afford to lose. It could be an hour a week. It could be the kind of proverbial, uh, kind of legendary 20% time of somewhere like Google, but just set it aside. Set it aside for research. Set it aside for process. Um, and as part of this, I think, um, you really have to be willing to spend time and to waste time well. And there's some artists I think are beautiful examples of this. Lenka Clayton of the typewriter drawing has another project called Alphabetical Shopping where she goes to the grocery store and she puts everything on the conveyor belt in alphabetical order so the receipt is alphabetical. I happen to love this because I am terrible as alphabetic, at alphabetical order, worse than adults should be. Um, she has another project where she took a small town German newspaper, circled all the names in it, found all the people and took photographs of them. And another where she went to the town Lenka in Slovakia, also photographed everyone. Um, these are all the people from the German newspaper. Um, or I think, I, oh, excuse me, uh, these are the people from the German newspaper. Um, or think of um, the artist Nina Kachadorian, who decided to honor her time spent on airplanes as an artistic vehicle. Um, she started making work on the plane, and at one point, in agreement with a gallery, she decided to make all of the work for a show in Auckland, New Zealand, on the airplane from San Francisco there. So these are a, a series called Lavatory Portraits in the Flemish Style that she makes in the lavatory of a 747 somewhere over the Pacific Ocean, only using things that she finds on the airplane or that she already has in her bag. I always imagine the thought process of the person who cleans the bathroom afterward and wonders why everyone used all the toilet seat covers. Um, but this, to me, is about uh, rigor and play. It's not about quirkiness. It's about showing up with discipline and curiosity at the same time. And this is the essence of studio time. Uh, next, hold the environment. So I think we have this idea of creativity and innovation that shares something with the myth of artistic genius, that there's Steve Jobs um, revealing a product, unveiling a product in a black turtleneck. And 
I think instead, what would it mean for managers of creative process to hold the environment, to take a page out of the book of Donald Woods Winnicott, the British child psychiatrist, who studied children separated from their parents because of war. And what he found was that it didn't matter if parents were perfect with their children, it mattered that they were good enough. And I think this is what we can seek in management of ourselves and of teams for creative processes. How can you make it feel safe to be vulnerable? How can you cultivate a culture in which people know that repair is possible um, so that they can bring their whole selves to work? This is very, very different from um, the idea of the star artist. I think, if anything, the idea of the star artist is now a costume that all of us get inside of and make things together in. Um, now I want to shift into thinking economically. Um, I, want to I want to share tools for accessing your most risk-taking, adventurous, uh, autonomous self on the one hand, but also making sure that you can get market systems to conspire to support that. And here I emphasize the importance of owning the upside. Uh, for example, uh, Thomas Fogarty, a cardiovascular surgeon, grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio as a self-professed juvenile delinquent who had to be either busy or supervised. He got a job in a hospital only because they were exempt from child labor laws and he was only 13. He went to work for a surgeon named um, Jack Cranley and Dr. Cranley uh, was in the business of removing blood clots, which was an un unimaginably gruesome business in the late 1950s. Many people died. And Fogarty said, there has to be a better way. So what he did was he started to tinker with the pinky finger of a latex glove and a piece of vinyl catheter. There is no glue that would attach them at the time, and so he tied them together with fly fishing knots that he learned uh, jumping out the window to go fishing, cutting school. Um, he owned a royalty in that product, and that royalty enabled him to go on to develop 165 other patents and to start an innovation institute. That device also has saved 20 million lives, about 300,000 a year since it was developed. Um, and the process of commercializing it and getting it tested medically was not easy, but the fact that he owned some of the upside allowed him to invest in further, further projects. And I think what this really comes down to is thinking from an orientation of value and mapping value for any project you're working on. Um, there's a tidy sense of value, which is what's the financial return here? That's usually a short-term financial return as represented on an earnings statement. But then there are also many other forms of value that your activity, your organization creates. This can be cultural value, social value, uh, goodwill, uh, invitation to others to create things. This could be economic impact. Uh, in a community, and then there's indirect value. And I think what we see right now is the potential for the work that Haber and Cernetta did and that so many others have built on in blockchain to allow us to really think kaleidoscopically and in totally new ways about ownership of upside, about how anyone is compensated for creative work and how we can develop systems of shared value, of fractional equity that will allow people who create value but don't own it to be included, uh, and people who create value but want to reinvest in generative other projects to harness that. The last idea I want to leave you with 
is um, the idea of setting grace periods. I think setting a grace period is really important because it allows you to make sure that you're focusing on the question you really want to. Um, many questions seem urgent, and certainly there are many other art projects in the world right now, geopolitical, climate, uh, social structure, whatever it is um, that you're noticing. Um, and they need urgent attention, but they also need imaginative attention. And I think setting a grace period allows you a little bit of space in your exploration. This is a picture of Roger Bannister two years before he broke the four-minute barrier in the mile. He's running in the Olympics in Helsinki in July of 1952. He comes in fourth place, which for him is devastating. I know that's not relatable, but um, for me anyway. But he, um, he says to himself, I think I'm going to stop running. Um, and then he thinks about it, and he realizes that he has two years in his life in which he can try to run a sub four minute mile. He's not a professional athlete, he's a neurologist, and he's finishing his residency two years from now. If you do the math, that's July 1952 to May 1954, almost two years later that he does it. So I invite you to set a grace period and um, to ask the question that you really mean to ask. Uh, and for that to be this, the dignity of modern creative labor, to hold environments in which people can come together in conversation and to give yourself space to invent the point B world that we all want to live in. Thank you.